Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 145 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I am Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. I first want to thank you for your patience in between the episodes. Death and cancer are a piece of shit. And with this being something completely free that I make zero money on, this took a back seat for a minute. We are back and stoked to have episode 145 of the podcast with Hutch Harris, most widely known from the band The Thermals. Hutch and I have been conversing back and forth on Twitter for years. I'd always loved his take on music, especially punk and hardcore references. As a fan of his band, The Thermals, I was bummed when not long ago, they called it quits. In addition to Hutch being a songwriter, I'd always enjoyed his writing he's done for various outlets, especially a recent piece on Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. On top of all of that, Hutch recently released a solo album entitled Only Water that is absolutely beautiful. So the stars aligned, we caught up late last year, and we talked music. This is episode 145 of the Wash Up Emo podcast with Hutch Harris from the Thermals. of my dad. My dad was a piano player and he played in like off-Broadway uh, off-Broadway shows. So I went and saw one show that he did probably when I was like seven or six. Um, and then he would actually do auditions with singers for bigger shows. So it's like singers would come rehearse with my dad uh, with my dad on piano and then he would accompany them to auditions where he would play piano for them. Wow. So I grew up with like, that's what we were hearing. Like my sister and I, when we were really little, that's the music we were hearing in the house. Yeah. Which is cool. Did you sense a connection to music when you were hearing that? Like, did you, or or were you just excited because that was what your dad was doing? Yeah, we were really into, I mean, like the Beatles were the only rock band that we ever heard, like as kids, like at least until, you know, at least from our parents. But so we were pretty much grew up on like, Broadway shows like Fiddler on the Roof and Gypsy, the Fantastics, 
but yeah, like we loved those. Uh, like you know, we were raised on show tunes, but yeah, we were really into it when we were really little. I mean, I still love like all those all those shows. Um, but yeah, we were really into it. Besides the fact that you know, my dad, it was my dad. That is so rad. Like, wh- hey guys, I'm going to have some singers over. We're going to practice like show tunes. <laughs> right. Right. It was really cool. Uh, that is not the, I'm dad, I'm going to work in an office all day. Like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what, other, what other ways were you learning about music? Was there a friend in school? Was there, were there uh, other, you know, sharing music? Like, how, how did you sort of move down the train of, you know, independent music? I mean, I can remember, like, you know, me and my sister were really into pop music. Like, once we moved to California, and we, you know, as we were getting older, like, I remember, like, my uncle taking us to a record store, and I bought Huey Lewis Sports. Oh, great record. Yeah. And my sister bought, like, a virgin, Madonna, which is crazy, because she was probably, like, seven or something, or maybe she was eight. Um but yeah, so then, uh, and then uh, you know, we were just like, you know, this was probably like 84, 85, 86. So it's like what everyone is listening to, like Phil Collins, yeah, Huey Lewis, Madonna. And then I think I, you know, I got into punk before. I think punk was the first, like, I don't know, stuff that, you know, music that wasn't mainstream that I got into. So I just had a friend um, yeah, in high school who was just making me mixtapes, you know, when I was probably like 15 that were like minor threat, uh, like a lot of DC stuff and a lot of like California stuff, like Descendants and Op Ivy. And then, you know, when I Nevermind came out when I was 16, so we were all just listening to like all the grunge bands. Um, yes, most high schools listening to just like punk, but not like, not any of the original punk, like not a lot of 70s punk. But a lot of '80s punk, like yeah, like Minor Threat, like Subhuman, mm-hmm. Misfit, a lot of like what I think of as kind of like the second wave, uh, the second wave of punk. What was appealing about it? It was appealing for the same reason that Nevermind was appealing is that you could play all those songs. Like this is when I was, you know, I started playing guitar when I was 15 too. So when I first started playing guitar, I was listening to like Guns N' Roses and Van Halen and like all this like schlock rock harder. Yeah, not like, not metal, but like just like stuff where the, all the guitar players are really like virtuosos, and it was like impossible to play all that stuff. You know, I still couldn't play a lot of that stuff. Um, but then Nevermind was like really easy to play, and then the same thing with like Descendants or Misfits. Um, you know, you could just sit down on a guitar and play those songs. And then besides that, I don't know. I mean, the, those all those bands are just like the songs are fast and really catchy, which just like always appealed to me. Yeah, and then for you, being able to play it, uh, you know, feeling like it's it's accessible. I, I just think there's a switch, uh, you know, where you could have stayed in the schlock rock and the Guns N' Roses and um, it moved on, but so, there was something about punk or or hardcore that sort of drew you in and if it was the fast and catchiness but then you probably started diving in i know i did you started looking at zines and really like oh what's this label who do they have oh that's from this scene and it's almost like your mind explodes because of how much stuff there's out there that 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 is out there right and also just like especially you know in san jose there was all this stuff coming up from like san diego like all the gravity records bands like yep. bands like heroin 
Um, I don't know if you know and Mohinder, but they yeah. were in a, and then there were bands like Indian Summer, you know, who were from Redwood City or for, you know, just a little bit north of San Francisco, you know, and also all those bands. There were a lot of the Sacramento kind of like, I don't know if you know, bands like the Bananas or Gnar or Four Eyes, just a lot of kind of, uh, not exactly pop punk, but like poppy punk, just bands that would just come down and play house shows in San Jose. How'd you find out about the shows? So when I, yeah, I, I mean, I lived in a house, like a punk house when I was probably like 19 and then 20, um, or maybe like 18, 19. Yeah, at a house that would, you know, like 15 would come play there and uh, like Delta 72. Oh, wow. Like yeah. A lot of like Olympia bands would come down, maybe some Portland bands sometimes. Um, it was this band, Busy Baxton, who was from Sacramento. I don't know if you know them, but just like there was something called the Sunnyvale Music Club, which was, you know, Sunnyvale's like is pretty much, you know, it's in the same area as San Jose. And they, it was just like a collective of like punk kids who would just put on house shows, put on shows like at the Cupertino Library or at the Knights of Columbus Hall, just like so many other cities, just doing like DIY shows in like any space that you could find. Um, and so I kind of met that scene like right, like the summer I graduated high school, which was 93. I didn't realize because you, you think of, you know, the East coast, all the cities are pretty close together. And for the most part, you're going to be able to, you know, see a bunch of bands and, you know, California, Oregon, you know, the, it's, uh, Washington state, like it, it, it's further. And so but for you to say like San, uh, San Diego bands came up or I saw these bands from Seattle or Portland, like I guess that was just – that was almost like the country to them. I know. It is, it's crazy because it is far because it is probably like almost 10 hours up to to San Jose from San Diego and the same coming down. Yeah, you know, it's like 10 or 12 hours to Portland then like 15 hours to Seattle. I mean it's just – it's the days of like uh, – book your own fucking life and just like bands. I mean, everyone was still on tour. It was, it was like booking was a lot more of a pain in the ass, but I think, yeah, I mean, it is weird. Cause you still have, you know, between like Sacramento, I don't know bands, you know, bands would play in Arcata and, uh, you know, just other like Humboldt County playing like Eureka or even in Ukiah. So I like, I remember going up to Ukiah to just, someone had just put on just like this big, like, hardcore fest that was just like a bunch of bands just camping in the middle of nowhere that probably only happened like one year. I don't know if they ever made a thing of it, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, there was a ton of stuff going on like that, but it was just, I guess like more under the radar. What about like zines and, you know, you got a seven inch and it was a label you didn't hear of. I, I talk about this a lot. I loved the unknown. I loved opening a, a pic, you know, a page on a zine and being like, I've never heard of that label. And I'm just making it, you know, right. oh, it's Discord Records. What's that? Oh, it's the, I mean, using that as an example, but the same thing with like a zine, like, oh, who's this label? Who else is on it? But the unknown and now we can do everything at once, which I love and it's how we're talking and we were, you know, conversing. But uh, it, there's some like, it, it's sort of like the kid in me of music always wanting that right i feel like it was like such a big deal that if you saw a band that was on tour and they were selling records and you liked them you would definitely get it because you never know when you like the band might just disappear you might never see them again or hear from them again 
And like, it wasn't like you could just go stream their record later that night or even like right then. Like there was a, uh, it was like a more of a, like an urgency of like, wow, this band was rad and they have a seven inch or so like better get it. If I ever want to hear them again. Urgency is a great word. It's just like, well, I have to get it. I'm here. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the record stores, I mean, we actually had a bunch of good record stores in San Jose. Like, we had Streetlight, and I don't know. I mean, we had a bunch of record stores, but still, you just never knew what, you know, there was so many uh, there were so many bands making records that you knew would never get carried. Uh, like, you would never see it in a record store. Do you think about that? Like, the you know, because you were sort of in the same window I was of, you didn't have the internet, and now you do. And you can, you remember the feeling of it without and it's not it's not even like oh i'm listening to music back in the day and it was better i love music today it's almost yeah, it's i it, i love so many new bands and you know people tell me to shut up like after i stopped recommending stuff it's the urgency and that moment of you're right i don't know if i'm ever going to see these again are they going to break up maybe i'll never see them again i have to experience it and maybe that's just me um being you know naive about it but it just it's it felt different right i mean i it's, it's stuff like i i don't think about it a lot till a conversation like this where we start talking about it and then i start remembering like a lot of things like i can recall you know amassing a bunch of seven inches and then you want to dub them all on a cassette so you can like so you can drive around uh listening to it and then it becomes a thing where you're just kind of I feel like part of the reason we'd collect seven inches because because you'd want to like make another cassette and you have like ninety minutes to fill. So you better get some more singles so you can put them on the cassette. But yeah, I feel like most yeah, it, it's like it's such an interesting format that you was something like because I would listen to singles at home, but I feel like the the most like most often when I was listening to a seven inch, it was a seven inch dubbed onto a cassette that I was listening to. I mean, and then again, you know, sort of the, you know, making the right mixtape and, uh, you know, appeasing your friends on the road trip and which ones did you pick? And um, I kind of loved that it was like you had put the, you put it down on tape and yes, you could go back, but that's some more time. And that sounds antiquated to so many people, but uh, it felt, you know, it, it was uh, the, the mixtape was very important. <laughs> Right, and it's also it's also why like the singles important, and like singles are important again now, and they were they were like when our parents were kids too, and they were buying like forty fives like in the fifties, sixties. So it's just like it's not something that's new to right now, where like albums don't seem as important. Like they kind of always are, but then also like singles are just always important because it's just a nice way to introduce someone to a new band. Like here's a couple songs from them. If you like it, you can. There's more probably or more coming and then if you don't like it well it's going to be over in a couple songs what about being on the west coast I've, I've interviewed a lot of bands if it was san diego a few folks from san francisco um but just your impression of when you got into the music scene and you sort of experienced it and then seeing and knowing about dc or knowing about uh you know another area um were there? Did you go and search out what that was about? And when, when then later, when you were touring, did it like live up to it? Or were there other things that you learned? Kind of, you know what I mean? Like you knew about it, and then finally, when you're there, you're like, oh, this is DC, or this is what they were talking about. 
I think it's something where you know about other scenes and you like, especially when it's something like Discord, like there was like a, such a huge respect for Discord where I was from, but also you knew that it was something like very different. It was just coming from a very different place and it was kind of mysterious, you know, in a way, which is cool because it was just so foreign. But there's also, I mean, especially like in any scene, people get really territorial and tribal and you get really into stuff that's, you know, we were in San Jose, we were like 45 minutes from Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco. So like lookout records, you know, we were like really, really into lookout records. Like that was like so important. And we felt, you know, just like, I don't know. I feel like, uh, California and Florida are like, a, are like, they're similar in a lot of ways. Cause you both have like these, like the weather's great. Cops suck. And then you have, like all these really good punk bands that have come out and not just from one city. Like you have like a bunch of cities and you're like, you know, this punk scene from here. And it's just like California is just such a massive state too. It's like, it's sometimes it's like Texas too, where you just feel like you've been in it forever. Country. Yeah, totally. And it's easy to just be in California and just be like, well, all my punk bands are here and like everything I need to know. Especially at that time, you know, this, you know, mid early or just, you know, whatever the nineties where you have like up Ivy and then you have green day being massive, but then you also have all these other bands like Mr. T experience. And then like AFI is like coming out of that same scene. So it's crazy. Like how much, uh, I mean, rancid and like, it's crazy. Like how much came out of that area in just like five or six, seven, eight years. Do you remember the first time you heard the word emo? Yeah. I feel, I always think of Indian summer, or current, if you remember current, yes. they, they played. They would they would be playing a lot. I, I feel like people would kind of talk about Fugazi being an emo band, but I don't feel the same way now. I mean, I always kind of think of Rights of Spring as being one of the first emo bands, but I definitely know like when I was hearing about it, it was probably like ninety five, ninety six, and it was it was definitely like bands like uh, Indian Summer coming down, but also Three Mile Pilot, which I also. But then I think in uh, in like looking back, I don't think I don't find them to be as emo. I don't know. It definitely was like there were all these bands coming out that kind of had a new style, or a, you know, a lot of different new styles, and it was easy to lump them all in as emo at that point. But then looking back, I mean, looking back on like Indian Summer, I'm like, oh yeah, that's like the emo band that I ever I ever saw. Like they all faced away from the audience and like. It was like so cool. I just always think of all, all those bands. Their chops were really good. Like they were just playing way better than a lot of the sloppy punk bands that were playing at that time. I, I was like a hardcore kid, so it was like cool. I loved, you know, Madball and Earth Crisis and all those bands. But then I'm like, oh wait a minute, you know, this band is just as intense. It's just a little bit more <laughs> slowed down, and um, you know, the screaming was a little bit more intense. And if it was macho, it was macho in a different way, or else it just wasn't macho at all. It kind of had this. You're right. Uh, like vulnerable side. You're right. It was. It was macho. It's easy for loud music to just get macho <laughs> very quickly, but uh, it, it's not. Uh, it, it definitely stood. So if all the other shows you're going to up until that point where you've seen emo band, if they're all kind of like dudes with big neck tattoos and just like a lot of like tank tops and flexing it's definitely like those emo <laughs> bands are definitely in a different world <laughs> yeah did it have a negative connotation when you were hearing it hearing the word was it sort of laughed at or scoffed uh yeah yeah definitely i feel like it was like derisive like pretty quickly <laughs> just 
because I don't know why. Maybe just because that's how we treat like things that are new or different. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was also somewhere like the bands that I played in, and the, like the friends I had, we were all like really into pop punk. We, we would like kind of to scoff at anything that was like arty or felt pretentious, which like a lot of the bands did. But I mean, but I still like I mean like Indian Summer would be like how how can you like deny that? Like that was like one of the best shows I had like ever seen. Um I think like quickly it's like like what happens in any with any genre, like a couple like, really awesome bands and then once people start to catch on that this is the next thing, you get a lot of bands that are kind of not don't want to be like have a heart in the right place or people kind of start writing coattails. And then so I I mentioned it, or you mentioned it quickly, it was like playing in bands. So when you were you were in um San Jose you started playing in bands and it it was mostly pop punk. What other stuff were you getting into or what other things were you learning um, being in those early bands? It was like pop punk, but it wasn't like, uh, it was more like jangly. Like I would say it was like closer to something like the dead milkman than it would be to like green day or, or like pansy division or Mr. T experience, like any of those lookout bands. It was just like, it was more like the Sacramento style, which was like big open chords, Guitars that, like, weren't super distorted. Like, I loved Fugazi, but I never had a band that sounded like that. Talk about the Sacramento style. The Sacramento, yeah. The bands I'm thinking of are, like, bands like the Bananas and Gnar and uh, Four Eyes, who were, there was kind of like a Santa Cruz Sacramento pipeline somehow. There were bands that would be living in, like, both, both cities, even though it was, like, three hours or two hours away. Yeah, it was just, I think the Bananas are the band, and I think you can, I don't know if they're on Spotify or whatever, but I think you can find their stuff. Yeah, it's just all very simple. It's almost like folk songs, like in a punk band. Um, It's almost even like stuff that's kind of like Daniel Johnson, but just maybe, you know, Daniel Johnson doing like a three-piece. It's just very like folky songs, um, like three-chord. You know, it's like, if you could... (sighs) take the Ramones and make it even like dumber and, and more simple. I mean, I love the Ramones, but it's like, <laughs> it's just very, uh, it's, you know, it's just very jangly and very, very simple. Why, why that sound out of Sacramento? I don't know. There was just a lot of, uh, that's really interesting. Was there a label? Know. Yeah. Yeah. There was secret center records, uh, which I think a lot of banana stuff was on. And, um, but I don't know, like, capital cities just make weird music, you know? It's just the way, like, you get, like, look at Olympia. Like, why did that, why did, I mean, you have Evergreen, but, yeah, I, I don't know why uh, capital cities are just weird cities, and, and people drink a lot, and just, you know, they they tend to be a little isolated. Even if, even if they're only, like, an hour or two from a major city, they just are isolated in their own way, and just weird stuff tends to come out. Well, plus you have all these kids that overrun your city for like nine months or whatever out of the year, and then they all go away. And then when they, you know, it's kind of like a, a lot of towns, it becomes a ghost town again when, when school's not in. Um, yeah, weirdness. And then you you moved out to Portland, and I think that's really interesting um, just because it's definitely a little bit ahead of the curve of uh, being up there. Um and you know you had I'd read some a couple of things that you kind of met another friend that got you into you know you know Britpop stuff and sort of you know the other side of the world were you aware of it before and what what was appealing about it and how did you what what and what connected what what felt connected when you listened to it 
yeah, so Kathy and I moved to Portland in 98, and then I started playing. I, I worked with this guy, Martin Leeper, who was English, but he had been living in Denver for like a while. And he had this band called The Minders, which was like a second six band. So Robert Schneider from the Apple, so that produced his record, and they kind of toured with other Elephant Six fans. I started playing drums with him, which was cool because I was I was really young, you know, I was probably like 22, um, and I could play drums, but I never really played drums in a band, not like a real band. And he he was I think he's like 10 years older than me, so he was like 31 or 32, which is felt like super old, you know, when you're, when you're 20, like someone in their 30s, like, wow, this guy's an adult. Um, and everything he kind of listened to, yeah, you know, I, I was saying in that thing I wrote about Pete Shelley that he had kind of really got me into the Buzzcocks. And like David Bowie, you know, who I'd always listened to, but never kind of like, um, never like with the reverence that he did, where you really like sit down and really like listen to what's going on and really try to understand, figure out what's great is doing, which was really cool. Cause I had just, uh, and the thing with the Velvet Underground, he was, you know, Martin was way more into just like late sixties and seventies stuff, um, which why I had been familiar with, but I had never really like dug in with. Um, so it was kind of, I mean, you know, it's one of the things we were like 22 or something. I'm like, Oh God, I feel like old already. What I didn't, I didn't listen to these bands in high school, but then looking back now, I'm like, Oh no, that's a great time. <laughs> a great time to get into the Velvet Underground. Yeah, because now you'd have been like, that's enough. I'm good. I'm already full. <laughs> right. <laughs> how is – I mean, I want to get back to the Buzzcocks, but I thought this was an interesting you know, part of this. How is important – just you personally, not necessarily um, Martin or everybody along – how is important is it to have people show you these records? Like friends. I think – yeah. You mean as opposed to like an algorithm interest? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's really, it's really important. You know, you kind of want someone to, you don't want someone to hold your hand too much because, you know, you know, you have friends that will do that. So like, they want you to listen to something and they're just like watching you the whole time you're listening to it for the first time, you know, and kind of just like, you're like, okay, can you just kind of like, <laughs> leave me alone and let me listen to this. But it's nice to, it is nice to have that human connection with someone, you know, you just, it's just like anything in life you want to share. If there's something you really like, you want to share it with something else. And so it's just nice to share that. I think it's so, it's so much more important today with the algorithm because I've done a bunch of those playlists and I did a bunch of them for Beats before Apple bought it. Uh-huh. And I remember one of the bands being like, you know, man, this thing just plays like it's supposed to. And I wrote them and I was like, I put that together. Like no computer did that. And I just, I still think regardless of how much information and there's still, I need to have the heart in it. And I'm sure there's been great things from these algorithms. And I've found out about bands 1000%. I just, there's something to, it's just, I don't know. It just doesn't have the heart. Yeah, and even if you find out about a new band from an algorithm, you're still probably going to, if you like it a lot, you're going to want to, share it with a human yeah. a human friend that you have i like if someone sends me a link we, yeah, i think that's great because in the you know when it was like five years ago or something when they send you a download i'd be like what am i going to do like download this i gotta put it on my phone or my I, true you know seem to be all these steps i had to do but a link is great and yeah i i, I don't mind uh kind of thing moving away from ownership of something is you know of media is fine um it doesn't bother me, but yeah, it's, you definitely need to do something. I mean, also just like the volume of 
stuff that's out there. There's just so much. So that also makes it so that bands just have to be better, I think. I love the title of the Buzzcocks article, and you call them the first e- emo band. And I think right. your your description <laughs> is great. And I want you to, you know, I want you to mention that, like, why you think it is. And uh, the I love the article. I just, I think the way that you expressed it um, was, oh, was, was beautiful and um, makes sense. But why, why are they, why are the first one for you? It's funny because as I was writing that, I was thinking, well, wait, weren't the Ramones kind of, you know, it's, it's uh, like we've seen punk evolve so much in like 40 or whatever, you know, it's almost 50 years. But at the same time, like a lot of, there was such an evolution, evolution happened so quickly. Um, if you think about like the MC5 and the Stooges kind of being the original punk bands or like the proto-punk bands and then stuff, um, you know, stuff blowing up in like New York City and then and uh, in the UK at the same time. And the, the fact that you actually have like the Ramones television and talking heads and all these bands that are considered some of the first punk bands, even though like those records don't really sound like that first talking heads record. If you tell people like this is a punk record, like it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it at all. And like, to me, like I love television, but television sounds closer to Pink Floyd <laughs> than it does. Uh, than it does like the Ramones or like, or then it does, you know, the sex pistols. But, uh, and there were, obviously the Ramones had love songs, but they were more based on like fifties bubblegum pop, fifties and sixties pop songs. Um, so just to me, like what's you know, I'm just trying to think, you know, was writing about Pichelli is what's what was unique about the Buzzcocks and why do people love the Buzzcocks? And I was so you know, it was so touching how many people. I was surprised um, just to see the like a huge outpouring of love for Pichelli. Um, and obviously, you know, when, when someone, you know, when a famous artist dies, um, you know, there's an outpouring of love and respect for the person, but there seems to be just something extra about what, what happened, uh, when Pichelli died and there were just so many people who, uh, who like had obviously been like so touched by his lyrics, um, their lyrics had just, his lyrics had meant so much to them and just, he was writing from just a really uh, a personal, very personal, very sensitive point of view. So to me, I was like, hey, they were the first emo band. Yeah. I mean, the, some of the things you said in the article were, you know, beautiful. I think you're right. Like the lyrics, what what was in punk and hardcore and emo, you know, if there isn't a respect, it's sort of marginalized on like indie rock sometimes where it's, you know, it's right. sort of like, oh, now you're this and, um, but like you're a dumb metal band or you're a dumb hardcore band when, or a punk. And f- for the Buzzcocks to be able to, you know, for the lyrics to kind of shine through, um, it, it just, it's, I don't know. It just, it's like, I wish, I know they had a lot of respect and, and things back then, but it just seems like it's only done later. <laughs> like it's not done when you really need it. The, like the general consensus kind of thing. Right. And I also just think a lot of times people aren't paying as close of attention as you would like them to, or, or, or you, you know, as much as you think they should, like, I was like, just so glad that he was being remembered, like specifically, like he was being remembered for specific lyrics and just for like finding things that really, you know, people tend to like commemorate someone's whole life and their career and kind of the, you know, just all what they did, but a lot of times it's not so specific where, uh, I don't know. I feel like even, even when David Bowie died, I, I don't know if I, I was hearing like 
lyrics quotes. I'm sure. I'm sure they were because obviously, like he has the best lyrics. Ever, no, but, I know what you mean though. It's just yeah, people yeah. were posting like personal things. It's one thing to post a right. photo with them. You know, I watch. I forget if it was. I think it was Jeff from Thursday or something. You know, posting like he played with us. You know, on this one date oh, and right. this, this, and this. And I think everybody had these like either experiences with him or moments. And I bet. That Jeff was whoever it was Steve or Jeff and Thursday I can't remember you know probably said something to him he was awesome back that like solidified it and I bet he did that thousands of times right and you know we we met them and we got to play with them and we met Pete and he was awesome I didn't like think it was enough to I don't know I didn't put it in what I wrote just because I didn't think it was. Uh, I don't know I thought it would just come across as like oh yeah we got to meet him too it was. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I kind of said enough about him and how special he was without having to say that. But but the truth is, we did, and like he was just like so nice and so friendly. And you know, you meet someone like that, and you think they're just going to be, I don't know, you, they're just like larger than life in your head, and you can't imagine them just being a nice, normal person. But some people just are. And then yeah, and I feel like that's the that's the key is that. That's why that's why it felt like something extra. I felt the same way. I was like, "Oh my god, I did not know that they loved him, or I didn't know that he did this." And right, I, right. I, those things after that you find out, and I feel like that's just someone living and and probably making someone's day, and they don't need to. I'm not saying people tweet or Instagram about it, but it's like those things happened and they weren't documented, but the person on the receiving end remembered it um, really deeply. What was your experience then with them? Like, was it just were they were you guys doing a show? Was it recording? What was the what was the experience? Because you didn't yeah, write no, about we it. Opened, uh, we opened for them at uh, uh, in Seattle at the Showbox. One of our like we had probably only been a band for like six months or so. Yeah, they were just like really sweet and just amazing. The show was like so. Yeah, I mean, they played like they were in their 20s. Like, they were just like so full of energy. Yeah, it was just amazing. It's like one of the things you can't, you're like, we don't deserve to be here. Like, what What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And then from the, you know, writing, when did you start um, writing and w- w- what do you enjoy about it? Probably like three or four years ago, I think. You know, it's just like, it was probably for the talk house uh, the, the first time. It's just like where our publicist was like, hey, do you want to review? You know, ask you to review another man's record in the, in the kind of hopes that in some you know way, if you promote your own record by writing about someone else's record. And I had I had met Michael Azerod, who who started the talk house. And I don't know if you know him, but he wrote yes. Come As You Are, that Nirvana biography. And he wrote Our Band Can Be Your Life. So he's like amazing. So we are, I, I had kind of been in touch with him. And I know that he left the talk house, but he had started it. And so I just, kind of been in touch with him and i remember just like i don't know like some for me like writing about someone else's record like reviewing a record is so difficult <laughs> i like do not like doing it because for me just like having to describe music is just impossible it's just like really hard <laughs> and not fun for me but any kind of other writing that's just like kind of just like light analysis or opinion or just kind of memoir type stuff like i really uh, I really, really enjoy. So I think I just, uh, I don't know which piece it was, but I eventually, you know, just, I, I just, you know, wrote to him and kind of got in touch and, and started writing, uh, you know, kind of infrequently, but it was just one of those things. The more I did it, the more I just really enjoyed it and just wanted to keep doing it. And it's nice because it's like, it's, 
anytime I had an assignment to do, like reviewing a record, I would just just dread it and <laughs> not enjoy it at all. But if it's one of those things where if I feel inspired, like if I, if I have an idea for what I want to write about, if I feel like I have something to say, then I can write it really quickly, and it's it's really enjoyable. And it's one of those things where, look, uh, the, I like the process, but then like actually like doing something till it's finished and finishing it like feels really good for me. That's cool. I forgot yeah. that Michael Azarad started Talk House. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I must have read Come As You Are, like, I don't know how many times. I'm looking at the book right now oh, on my yeah, bookshelf. Right when it came out, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it'll be a good life, too. Yeah, it's so cool. I think he has something new coming out. I'm pretty sure. Wow. Yeah, I just yeah. feel like those are, yeah, like seeing him, you know, and and being able to hit the way that he was telling storytelling and stuff. That's so cool. He did the talk house. I think another article that you wrote that I've been thinking about a lot is um, is the one talking about reviews and from right, right. and Greta Van Fleet and sort of the being a critical darling and then not. And here's my opinion, and I have a few questions for you about it. But okay. I, lo- I loved it because I think about that where if for someone – if for some entity that's that critical to the perception or if a radio station might play it or it just – I feel like it permeates more than someone realizes and is a detriment um, when something like that is done. And I'm not saying you can't review something and shit on it, but it's just – there's like a level of respect – and not like not a dunk and it's right. still music and there's and the way that you end it is sort of like that sentiment of the fans decide and you were right like led zeppelin was not critically revered you know critically claimed and now people follow their fall over themselves to do that the same thing i think with some emo bands and punk and any genre you know years later but it's like where were you 10 years ago when you shit on reina maria and now right, right, you're falling right, right. over yourselves yeah for fucking well, no, what happened when right. <laughs> they they couldn't get a tour because of that, or it just it seemed like it'd be written off, and I would just get I I don't know. It's not like they were the one that did it, but it just seemed like that was the snowball, or like the not the snowball, but the sort of the 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 stake in the ground, and it, just the modern review itself. It just seems like it it takes on too much of a life and that's my that's my opinion <laughs> yeah it's too i mean you don't want to admit that these people have that much power but they do sometimes because yeah sometimes you know especially with something like pitchfork where a lot of times a lot of other blogs are waiting to see what pitchfork says first and then they're going to base their review like they want to know is this okay to like like they don't want to look bad um but yeah you don't want these you don't want like critics to to know that they actually do have power. It's it's really hard to admit because then you think, well, yeah, if they can make a band huge on one great review, then they can also tear the same band down. Um, and it's not like I didn't. I was trying to write the article. I'm, I'm not trying to defend Greta Van Fleet. Like I don't like. I don't hate that record, but also I can see why people hate it. But look, they just got like it. They're playing massive sold-out shows. They got nominated for a Grammy, which like is ridiculous. And I don't, I'm not like, I don't like, well, I don't think awards are like important to what we should be looking to. But it's like, obviously, you know, a band like that, it's not gonna. I don't know. You got to wonder at what point a review is saying more about the place 
you know, it, it says a lot more about who's writing it than it does about the band or the artist. What about your experience with that and having, you know, being a critical darling and having the the great scores and the, you know, the and then for it to have, you know, what was it? Uh, I think Desperate Ground had like 5.0 or something. Right, right. What was the... For, I really want to get into the head of like, were you guys like, okay, cool, Pitchfork's cool, or whatever the reviews were, Consequences Sounds in, and this one's cool. What was the feeling then when that happened? Was it, did you think about yourself and you're like, what did we do wrong? Or you felt we were still doing the right thing, it was just the writer? Like, did it fuck with you? Oh, yeah, it totally fucked with me, but I didn't, we didn't think we did the wrong thing at all. Like, I still don't, like, I love that record. Like, I fucking love it. I love it more than the record we did, like, before or after. Like, I really <laughs> love it. Um, but the most annoying thing was for me is, like, a lot of the interviews that I had to do for that cycle, like, I had to talk about that review. Like, oh. talk about all these blogs that didn't want to talk about what their review was. But also at the same time, there were other, magazines that gave it a bad review too so you know it's like a weird thing is to be like to do some feature for uh you know like uh whatever blog or whatever magazine like a week before your record comes out and they're like you know like they're your bro and they're like oh yeah we love the new record and like you know we're just working on whatever you know something and then and then the record comes out and they give it a bad review like i mean you should never get uh you have to remember that, like, no, like, critics and journalists, like, they're not your friends. So you can't be, like, you can't be surprised when stuff like that happens. But just, I mean, the thing is, like, more than anything, like, the music, when we started, when our band started, it was, like, 2002, there were still, like, you still took, like, photos, and you still printed photos, and you printed, like, a bio, and you sent CDs. You know, the label and the publicist would send CDs to, uh, <laughs> to journalists, so... Like, the change that we saw, this was before, you know, like, any kind of streaming. You know, there was illegal downloading already, totally. but there wasn't. We didn't move to this thing. So it, it it's really hard to crack. You're like, okay, well, we are selling less records, but the stream, you know, but but people are almost, like, not even counting sales. They're counting streams. So it's hard to, like, determine what helped or hurt your band at a certain point over the last 15 years because every four or five years, the industry, like there was some major shift in, in how you statistically tracked your success. So it's hard to tell. Yeah. As far as like bad reviews, it's hard to tell how much, uh, how much they helped or hurt. Like after a while, it's just like, you it's hard it's hard to follow <laughs> yeah i mean you you mentioned the point earlier sort of like the you know the pr people are not your friends and i always remember you know kurt cobain when the interviews that i would see on tv or read them like i could tell there was like this like apprehension right and i kind of picked up on that and being like you they're gonna write whatever they want <laughs> and you have to you know play the game a little bit and say the thing they want and was there uh, as you guys were in the band and you you're t actually you're totally right sort of like 2002 i just i w started working in the music industry 2000 so right before that and that was sort of my first day the someone said uh yeah this music industry is going to be over soon you know they were just like uh, it's, right. it's over and i'm like well i'm you know i'm still here 18 years later but the that 
you're, there was like shifts every few years and you're right. Like you're trying to be a band and figure out where people are paying attention. And did it, did it feel like an earthquake each time? Did it feel like, like I thought we figured it out and then all of a sudden <laughs> there's something new. I feel like we were lucky because we were always, even though we switched labels a couple times, we were always on a good label and it always seemed to me that they, you know, we were just kind of like pointed in the right direction. You know, like some pops like you got to get on Facebook. And then by the time we were on Kill Rockstar, like you got to get on Twitter. And then, <laughs> you know, it was just, you need, um, especially as you're getting older, you know, like it's easy if you're like 19 and you like know that you got to be on Snapchat or whatever. But I think as long as you have some kind of team or someone helping you out, I mean, at least for us, like it was never like scary. It was just always kind of, you know, you just kind of roll with it. Um, I mean, by the time you get to streaming, we're like, well, at least people aren't really getting the record illegally anymore. Cause people would always like very often tell us at shows and be like, I love you guys. I didn't, I haven't paid for any of your records. I have a burned kind of, CD in my car. Yeah. It'd be so weird how proud people, people always felt like they had to say that and be like, eh, okay. And sometimes it'd be like, you know, you know, buy a t-shirt and give us some extra cash. But it's like, it's weird how uh, that was just very normal. Um, I think there was an era for, for your time. band and probably in me in the industry that no one paid for anything. <laughs> like, no, yeah, yeah, absolutely not. So by the time some people are like, well, does it, you know, streaming, you're only getting paid like a penny for a thousand plays like that bothered you. I'd be like, not really, because we were getting zero. We already like weren't making that much money from sales. Um, but at the same time, like vinyl sales came back like really, really huge. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're still making, we still make money. I feel like we're making, we've done better in the past. Like, Oh, I don't know. I feel like as, as digital sales went down, cause everyone's streaming like vinyl sales went up. Um, so whatever, there's there's some balance in there somewhere. Yeah, and then for you to for having this like longevity, I mean, you guys were around for a very long time. What was did and how did you find the right people? I know you talked about the label, and you were on Kill Rockstars, Saddle Creek, Sub Pop, Classics. How were you right. finding the right people, and what decisions, and how? Because that's I think you know the. It, that you guys were around that long is a huge accomplishment and you had, it wasn't, you know, it, you made the right decisions a lot of times. Right. I think I feel like we made a bunch of mistakes too, but what are you going to, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I assume that but I'm saying like being around that long and having the right like what were decisions when things went right? What were the decisions you were making to sort of go down that path? Just thinking of people in bands now listening, like what? How do, how do we keep going when we fought all night in between, you know, Chicago and uh, you know whatever city, and trying to figure it out? I remember I had I remember reading like an old interview with Green Day where they were saying like it's very important that you. Um, oh, I think I read that the one with friends. With. Yeah, yeah, just like you have to like be friends. Cause you're going to spend 24 hours a day for like months with these, you're going to be around these people like all the time. Like you have to get along if you don't want, you know, there's obviously a lot of bands that don't get along and they just like seem like they're miserable. So I think if you can just like finally, if you can hook up with people that you're going to like be friends with that, uh, 
he'll at least be able to weather a lot of the really hard parts of being in a band and the hard parts of being on tour. Because you're gonna you're gonna be friends with them in the morning. You're not gonna. I mean, you might hate them for a minute, but you're right. You're friends. You're friends. You're right. you're friends before the band. <laughs> right. Right. And just like yeah, you're gonna be close like siblings. So you're gonna have to learn how to fight and get over it too, because you're just gonna you're gonna have to have fights and like every fight can't be just a laugh. It can't be the end all of everything. You have to be able to disagree with people um, and just get over it. I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with moving on. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it's hard for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. I think this is worth telling this story again, uh, just because of uh, the the people involved. But the having you know early on for the thermals, having Ben Gibbard from Death Cab, uh, you know, hear the record and uh, pass it on. Um, I know Ben is I, Ben. I love Death Cab, and um, you know they were early on playing like fest, you know, certain punk and hardcore festivals early on, and right. um, definitely. I think recently he sort of shit on emo, which was kind of funny. Um, I think he was goaded into doing it by the article, but uh, <laughs> which is like, uh, but how? What was that like? And uh, can, can you take us back to that and sort of what what the pieces of you know having music that you were just you know making in the kitchen and then having a, a pretty insane label say what's up? Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, just then was just kind of around in those days. Like this is probably like right after this photo album or kind of in that era, maybe a little bit before. So like that guy was already, they were doing pretty well, but it wasn't like, you know, they were like a character on the OC and they were like, you know, doing massive shows and then eventually signing to a major. They, they were big, but not, not as huge as they would get, but he was working on the postal service record for sub pop and he gave sub pop our demo. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, Chris Walla, produced, you know, mixed the first record for us, did the second one, and Death Cab took us on tour. So it's really like they really did like a lot for us, like right when we needed it, right when we were starting out. And it really made a difference because you can send your, you can send a demo to Sub Pop, but if you have someone like Ben Gibbard vouching for you, yes. you know someone's <laughs> going to listen to it. <laughs> and Chris Wallace saying, I want to produce. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Chris is great. And Chris, you know, he did Personal Life, and then he did We Disappear. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to him, like, just a couple weeks ago, because I'm hoping that I'll do make another record, do a solo record with him, because he's just the best. I mean, everyone we've worked with, we really like, but there's something about Chris that just... Chris just kind of really understands exactly what we're trying to do, and he just has a really... He's, like, just really... Uh, and he works really hard, but he's very, very laid back in the studio, which I think is important, which I like. Um, Chris and I are the same age. I mean, there might be like a year difference between us, but uh, there's just something where uh, I feel really, really comfortable with Chris. And I just trust him a lot. So is that is that his secret then? Is it being the right temperament in the studio? I know. I mean, I mean like musical prowess and all that yeah. stuff, but is that is that? It's like amazing musician and engineer. But yeah, a lot of it is personality. But you got to have the you got to have the skills first. I'm sorry, that sounded so stupid. But yeah, like <laughs> no, no, but it is a huge part. It is a huge part. <laughs> I just can see him like just being laid back and just being like, "Yeah, you're good. You're good, man." <laughs> right. Also, he's just very positive. It's just like a really good energy to be around. That's cool. I remember at a uh, Tegan and Sarah show, he was four rows ahead of me 
in New York for the con and they were playing uh, town hall and he's in the aisle like bopping his head and he right. like and I was just kind of like that's really cute actually <laughs> like, right yeah, that's adorable <laughs> super into this <laughs> and then I guess for the you know the, having the you know the length of the band and going through all those um, you know changes were there I guess were there were there other things that stuck out to you as what kept it going because you know a lot of bands one or two records that's it and they kind of go their separate ways what was sort of the the fire that was keeping it uh going and um you know sometimes you're right you kind of each few years you had to learn a new social network but you know personally and musically what kept it going I just think that we were always like really in control of what we were doing and the decisions we were making. Like we had a lot of people try to manage us. We never signed with a manager. Kathy and I always managed the band. Like I kind of really excited. Yeah. And then Kathy would do all the finances and still does like, we just like, and so we never felt like anyone was like kind of pushing us around or no one was kind of like, I don't know, for better or for worse, like all the decisions were just only from us. And we always, it just always felt like, you know, we were just, we were steering the ship and we were just doing it exactly the way we wanted to. And it was sometimes we would do a record and then just turn around and make another one the next year. And sometimes we would wait three years to put out another record. It was just like, we never felt like, you know, and a lot of times we weren't doing things like for the best of whatever, you know, what would be best for the band. It was just personally and emotionally like what we wanted to do. Um, and then the band would just, once it started doing well, like we were really able to support ourselves well. And, you know, it just like, uh, I don't know. We kind of set it up so that once, once we really got it rolling, it was like a ton of work to keep it, to keep it going uh but you know all the offers kept coming in and we just kept we just kept doing it i fucking love that <laughs> yeah cuz i you you're right it's like the pressure of having a manager and they're going to handle all that stuff and it's like no, i got this and it's almost like you've, you right. you kind of brought the diy with you throughout absolutely absolutely cuz you know we still i you know we we made our own record covers. I wrote all the bios. I wrote all the press material. So yeah, we was really like, even though we were, we always had a good, like we definitely tried to keep it as, as DIY as we could. I, I mean, I think that's such an important feeling and it's like, if I meet somebody and they've got, you know, a bad brains poster on the wall or they've got, you know, a descendants thing, it's like, okay, we're good. You know, they've, you've gone deeper past, you know, the, AM, the uh, FM radio, um, unless it's far left right. on college. But you've at least – and I think for you guys to have that, uh, you know, DIY feeling, I think you learn so much more and you call out bullshit quicker. You you wrote a bio. Right. So when you get a shitty bio, you call it out instead of just kind of skimming it. Right. Right. Well, I had read a lot of other bands. And I was like, well, these are fine, but they're kind of boring and I feel like we could just do better. that's cool and then so what was was there were there other interests um that you were pursuing there other things that you like other than when you're in a band or was sort of the band you know 24 7 uh i mean you you said it was some success so you were able to kind of sustain on that correct there wasn't like second jobs or things no and there still was you know it was just more like just eventually we just didn't want to tour that much. We didn't want to go back to Europe. We didn't want to like, all the offers were still there, but we were just burning out. And I just kind of wanted to 
finished the band while we still enjoyed it. Well, you know, I still felt like it was it, like it still meant something. I just didn't want to like drive it into the ground for another like twenty years or something. I want to talk about the new record, your solo record. Um, oh, cool. And my favorite song is "I Belong to No One." I know oh, it's, cool. I know it's a deep cut, deep deep in the record, but totally, totally. <laughs> uh, what was the, the? Had you had these songs for a long time? And were there just, or were they happened to be whatever was, you know, that this was the time period and these were the songs. How did those come about? Half, half of them. I was like, I, I, uh, just like a year ago or so, or early this year, I decided, um, that I was going to make a record. And so half of the songs were like stuff that I kind of had floating around, like on paper in my head for a few years. And I just hadn't made sense of. So half of those, yeah, were, were things I was like, I would really like to flesh these ideas out and finish these. And then the other half of the record was just stuff that I just came up with like in the last six months or so. Um, so it felt nice because it was kind of like cleaning house, kind of like cleaning my head out a little bit. Um, I just really wanted to make something that was as 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 different as the thermals as I could do in that like just something with no noise, like no distortion. There's no like no pedals, no cymbals, just something really like very, very, uh, just very simple and very quiet as opposed to, you know, what I, I felt like, or, you know, the thermals have just, it's, it's always been very loud and, uh, I was just trying to do something very understated. What else about the record would you want people to know? It sounds like a thermals record. <laughs> <laughs> the first couple things I hear are people like, Oh, this just sounds like the thermals. Like, well, it is That's me. Insane. I mean, I wrote the song. Like, this is me singing and playing guitar. So, this is what I sound like. Great review. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so that's that's how I would tell people. It just sounds like a like a quiet thermal record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm proud of it. I think the songs are really catchy. I had someone uh, someone describe it as being underproduced. Which wow! Is, like that felt really good to me because that is exactly that is what I wanted it to be. Like, I just wanted something that felt like just very chill and not it's not like incredibly labored over and it doesn't sound just like sweaty and wrecked it just sounds uh you know it's as relaxed it's as relaxed as i can be so it's not incredibly relaxed but it is more chill than i'm used to (laughs) (laughs) felt great too because i didn't i was like i'm not going to do press for it i'm not going to do i'm not even going to write a bio i'm not going to do like all the stuff i'm not going to tour like i might do some touring next year but Overall, I'm like, I just, I don't have to do, I'm just going to let it out there very quietly and be like, here's a new record I have and not make a huge deal about it. And then like a ton of people heard about it. And then like a, you know, a few of the blogs wrote about it. So I felt like I kind of got like enough press. Like I'm like, I'm not going to do, I don't know. For for doing like a really like quiet understated record, I got like a, a lot, a lot of really good response, which is awesome. That's great. I mean, again, yeah. for like your your expectations, where I'm just going to put this out, and then to have people pick up on it and want to talk about it, um, right. is, instead right. of having a publicist, you know, ram it down their throat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I already have a bunch of songs written, so I'm going to do I'm going to do another kind of like uh, go back to kind of making like a big rock ish record. But yeah, yeah, I'll tour. I'm at the stage right now where if I could ask to play a show, I usually say yes, but I'm not like searching out. Uh, shows and I know I will tour again eventually. I feel like I have to right now. I would kind of like to finish another record first and then kind of see about it. What else are you doing? Uh, is there you know is there another jobs or other stuff that you fill your time with? If it's 
you know, if it's writing or video um, games or. <laughs> yeah, I've been producing other bands for the past couple of years. There's a studio called Destination Universe where Portland. Um, so we do a lot of Portland and Seattle bands there. Um, so usually, like, I have a couple projects a month that I'm working on there. So that keeps me pretty busy. That's the closest thing to a job that I have to do. But it's, you know, it's just like hanging out in studios with bands. So I love it. So it doesn't feel like a job. Yeah, no, do what you love. Yeah, it's great. So what what do you do for fun then when you're not doing music? I go to the coast a lot. The Oregon coast is like super nice. I'm always just like trying to get out of town. Uh, like especially this type of uh, time of year just because it's so like dark and cold in Portland. Yeah, but I, don't, I keep myself pretty busy. I'm like, I'm usually writing or working on something. Yeah, and then I just try to get out of town when I can. I mean, so what 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 do you want to do next? Is there like a pie in the sky dream or something that you've been thinking about that you want to do next and another thing on your list? I would like to write a book, but I it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> Every time I finish like something that's like 1500 words, I'm like, "That was great." But man, anything more than that sounds like a huge chore. So I don't know. I, I do feel like, I, and people keep telling me that I should, since I write all the time, that I should do a book. And I just like rock memoirs, like in general. So I think at some point, I would just need to find like a good angle for it. I don't, my life hasn't been like incredibly dramatic. So I don't know if, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I will write a book at some point, but not quite yet. It is, it is a giant pain in the butt. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> starting something and then like i was saying you know just finishing to a finishing project, it yeah that to me just feels better than anything yeah i see people like struggle on records for years and years where people that like let stuff sit for so long and they're like oh it's not perfect i'm always telling people you just need to finish this just just for your own just to finish it for your for your personal satisfaction or just you know just to like just so you can move on and do something else if nothing's going to ever be perfect but you need to finish something <laughs> and get to the next thing cool anything else you want to mention did i get to everything is there um, any other thing that i, I missed no so. no that that feels very uh comprehensive to me <laughs> You're like, you kept me on for an hour and a half or an hour and 10 minutes. You're enough, Tom. I really appreciate that you took the time um, to do this. And I love your sort of history and your writing. And um, I do hope that you write a book because I think you're a great writer. Um, and I think that it's, you know, the world would uh, the world would appreciate that. Cool. No, thanks so much, Tom. Yeah, no, I'm so glad we got to do this finally. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo. And volume two was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also printed volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com